You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. What color is your house? Do you have that color in your mind? You're thinking about it? Can you see it? Okay, good. Now, something just happened in that moment. As I asked that question, whatever your brain was thinking about before, I hijacked it. I took over. And you started to think about the color of your home. Whatever you were thinking about before was, was completely moved to the side for that moment at least you were thinking about the color of your house or your apartment. I'm guessing you probably weren't thinking about the color of your house right before that moment. You didn't consciously say, hey brain, uh, I was just asked a question. I'd like to be a good uh, listener. So what is the color of my house? No, it's just an automatic response known as instinctive elaboration. So what happens is when a question is posed, your brain immediately focuses in on that question. And when it's thinking about the answer to that question, it can't contemplate anything else. We're actually not very good at multitasking. And so research and neuroscientists found that the human brain can only really process and latch on and think about one idea at a time. And so when somebody asks you a question, it kind of forces your mind to think about that question. Questions are powerful. They cause us to think. And that's why great teachers are skilled at asking good questions. Businesses will pay consultants a lot of money to particularly come in and ask the questions that aren't being asked. See, questions, rather than giving you the answer... They pose questions that force you to process and to think about your, to think your way through to that answer. In the book of Romans, how many questions do you think Paul asks? Do you see what I did there? I know the answer. I could have just given you the answer. But in that moment, you had to think about, well, oh, oh wait, let me think about. I've read Romans. I've, I've seen it. How many questions are there? And even if you have no clue, it at least made you start to grapple with, oh, Paul asks, he must be asking a lot of questions in the book of Romans. Now, I know there's some type A people here who just got to know the answer. And I counted them for you. It's 80 questions. I thought that was pretty significant. 80 questions in the book of Romans. Now, as Romans 8 comes to a close, and we've been walking kind of verse by verse through the book, uh, uh, through chapter 8. This, like, this chapter of chapters, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. As he's starting to land the plane, he's got uh, nine final verses. We're going to cover two of them today. And as he goes through these last final uh, verses, he's going to ask seven questions. If you think about that, almost his entire ending to this chapter is question after question. He spent a lot of time covering some of the deep and glorious truths of the gospel. 
And instead of giving you the conclusions, telling you what to think, he's going to uh, 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 ask these questions so that your mind is coming to these conclusions. And he wants our thoughts centered on all that God has done for us in his salvation. So this morning as we look at verses 31 and 32, we're going to look at three of these last seven questions. And the first question is a question of reflection. Paul's aim is is to have us consider and think of all the ground that we've covered so far in the first 30 verses. We're supposed to, with this kind of question, if you were just reading this on your own, it would be that moment where you're supposed to stop, not go on too quickly to the next question. You're supposed to stop and pause and reflect and think about it. Second question is a question of opposition. It's a question of opposition. Is he's making some final conclusions based on everything that he said. He's going to ask us, is there then any conceivable power that can prevent us from obtaining our salvation? If, 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 if the, the, the first 30 verses of Romans 8 is all about all that God has done to achieve for us salvation, Paul's going to ask, is there anything in this world that could keep it from coming to fruition? Is there anything that can keep us from obtaining our salvation? So it's a question of opposition. And then there's a third question, and it's a question of assurance. This question is asking, and I think a lot of you ask this question, how can I know for sure that God loves me and that he's for me? How can I know for sure? Is salvation something I can have a confident assurance? Has God done anything to just settle the matter, to prove once and for all that he loves me and he's for me. Let's start together. we got three questions to look at this morning. In verse 31, we'll see the first question of reflection, this question of reflection. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? So as we step into verse 31, we're reaching the crescendo of chapter 8. The crescendo, it's that moment in the song when all the build comes to uh, this climactic moment. And as we enter into it, he wants us to reflect on all that he has said so far. So what are the, these things that we're supposed to reflect on? Just think about chapter 8 so far. In verses 1 to 8, Paul says, listen, the penalty of your sin has been paid for in full in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus has paid your penalty, so therefore you are free from eternal condemnation. Without the blood of Christ, you are are condemned, but because Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because the work of the Spirit is in your life, You are being freed from the power of sin. So the penalty of sin, paid for. And as the Spirit works in your life, progressively, year over year, He's freeing you, changing you. The the, the grip that sin has had on you should be weakening over time. And now the Holy Spirit walks with you, changing you from the inside out, both to desire and to actually live in obedience. It's not that on the day of your conversion, everything uh, changes to where you live categorically different. But over time, 
When like people meet you, maybe 10 years after you've come to faith, they should see a difference in you. And then in verses 9 to 11, Paul says, he gets into all this identity language. And he says, remember who you are. You have been categorically changed. It's not just that you have like a new, uh, a new ideology or, 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 or a few things have changed your life. You are a completely different person. You have a brand new identity. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have a new motivation called grace to live out your life. You're not living out of fear anymore. Fear's been gone. Fear is, is, is the old way. Fear is uh, the motivation uh, of slaves. But you are now a son or daughter of God. You've been adopted into God's family. So now your motivation to live is out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, motivated by grace. And so Paul told us, so take action. Live like you've been changed. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness serving the enemy anymore. And so as one who is now on God's team, wage war against the flesh. Don't be passive against your fight against sin. Remember what we said? Kill sin or what? It will be killing you. You can't tame sin, but you can kill it. We saw that in Romans 8. And then he said, never forget. God's love for you doesn't merely just forgive you. That would be amazing in and of itself. We could still sing amazing grace. We could still do that if we were merely forgiven because that's awesome. But God's love goes beyond forgiveness all the way to adoption. So God doesn't merely pardon us. He adopts us. And that has categorical differences. We are a beloved sons and daughters of God with an inheritance because of our new family beyond anything you could ever ask for or imagine. Then in verses 18 to 27, Paul said, but for now, don't forget, life in this broken, sin-soaked world often means you will face temptations, trials, and suffering. So we have all this good news about our identity and how uh, 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 we've been loved into adoption. And Paul says, but let's get real for a minute. As long as we still live in this sin-soaked, broken world, you're going to face temptations and trials and sufferings. And that's not an indication that God has forsaken you or abandoned you. And, and, and that's going to be a real struggle. We're going to look around us and based on our circumstances go, well, maybe God isn't actually for me. Maybe God has abandoned me. And, and because we're co-heirs with Christ, Paul says, listen, you're going to walk down the same road as Jesus did. And what was that road? It was a road that led to glory but was paved with suffering. So in this life, on the way to glory, on the way to obtaining that inheritance, this redemption of our bodies, this, this, this uh, being delivered into the presence of God, there's going to be suffering along the way. But take heart. Why? Because this road to glory, this suffering you're going to endure is not meaningless. It's not purposeless. It's the kind of suffering that produces real change in us that couldn't happen otherwise and leads to glory. And then he said, listen, and it's okay on the way there. If it hurts, that's real. So if you need to cry, 
cry. If you need to groan, groan. It's okay to be human. You don't have to be stoic. Sometimes the pain will be so real you won't even know what to pray. In fact, creation groans with you too. Creation is suffering too. They are, we are all together awaiting the day when all the sad things will come untrue. And so Paul says, in the meantime, lean into hope. And even if you don't know what to pray, pray anyway. Why? Because the spirit of the living God is praying with you. He's the perfect prayer partner. So you can trust that the spirit of the living God will take your unformed, imperfect prayers, perfect them, and carry them all the way to the Father. And last week we saw in verses 28 to 30, Paul says, and we know, which means certainty, that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because, why? The foundation of the promise, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, for those who love God, those who've responded to his initiating love, Paul says in no uncertain terms that the God of his universe, armed with all of his omniscience, all of his omnipotence, all of his omnibenevolence, is directing every single detail of your life and the lives around you and the world around you by his providence and sovereignty to ensure that everything ultimately works out for your good. And you don't have to understand how he's doing that. In fact, you could never understand how he's doing that, but he is. And so that means every situation, every relationship, every circumstance, both the good times and the bad, the happy and the sad, the joy and the sorrow, every suffering, every trial, every moment of every mundane day, all of it is working together for your good. And that unbelievably good promise stands on an unshakable foundation of God's work and salvation. And we looked at how, and that, and this, in, in Romans 8, uh, 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 29 and 30, Paul is unpacking all that, all of God's work and salvation, everything that he does. He doesn't talk about what we do, our response to what God does, but he just wants you to see this massive promise is true because it stands on an unshakable foundation. So God, listen to what he does to redeem his people. He, God, all the way in eternity past, set his love on you. Even though you didn't exist, even though you had done nothing to deserve it, not by human will or exertion, but because God is a God of love and it is his joy and prerogative to set his love on his people. He set his love on you. He foreknew you, which means he foreloved you. And he chose you beforehand. He predestined, which means he laid out your horizon. He could see every moment of your life and he directed it perfectly according to his will. And then it says that he called us, that there's this moment in time when he speaks into your life, he calls and you respond. He essentially comes up to your dead, sin-soaked, dark body and says, Wake up, it's time. Come to life. And he calls you. 
And in that moment, a whole chain of reactions happen. He justifies you. He takes the finished work of Jesus where all of the world's uh, sins and our sins, were, 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 they were placed on him and he died for our sins in our place and he gave us his righteousness. The father says, I will look on him and pardon you. I will accredit all of Christ's righteousness to you because you have none of your own. We love because he first loved us. And then Paul looks into eternity future and says there is coming a time when you will be glorified. Where your struggle will sin with sin will end. You will receive the redemption of your bodies. All the brokenness, all the pain, all the sorrow will eventually be as if it had never happened. See, Paul's plan, God's plan of redemption is comprehensive. It goes all the way from eternity past, reaches all the way into eternity future. And there is coming a day when we will be fully, completely transformed into the glorified image of Christ. And there's not a single link in this chain that could ever be broken. Every one of them is inevitable and unbreakable because God is the one who is holding all those things together. And Paul says, in light of all of that, what more can we say? What reflections can we draw? What are the implications of these glorious truths? That question is both worship and application. In one sense, he's going, is there, I mean, can we add to that? And at the same time, he's going, let's add to that. Let's think about what that means in our lives. If all of that is true, what else can we say? That's his question of reflection. And it gives way to a second question. It's a question of opposition. Look at the last half of verse 31. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this is what's called a rhetorical question. You probably knew that. You were smart people. Rhetorical questions have obvious answers, meaning it's not really seeking information. It's making a statement in the form of a question so that you come to that conclusion. It's really rhetorical questions are questions that are, that are, that are kind of hidden as statements. They're making a statement. They're making a point rather than asking for information. So in other words, if we were to make this into a statement, Paul is saying, because God is for us, since God is for us, then nothing or no one can successfully be against us. Now, to be sure, Paul isn't saying that believers will never face opposition. That's not what he's saying. There's never, he's not saying that there's never going to be people opposed to the gospel. Remember, just a few verses earlier, he was talking about how we're going to have to patiently endure suffering until God's plan of redemption is complete. And then in a few verses... Paul's going to detail some of the opposition that believers can expect to face. He's going to talk about what will separate us from the love of God. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. He's saying those all could oppose you. Paul himself was well acquainted with suffering. In fact, by the time this letter was written near the end of his life, he had had his fair share of suffering. In 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about some of the stuff he's endured. Listen to this. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. If you're bad at math, that's 39. He's saying there were five different times where I was lashed 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift at sea. That is my worst nightmare, being adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from Paul's brother. Paul's saying, I couldn't go anywhere and not face danger. Everywhere I went, toil, hardship. There were sleepless nights. I was hungry, thirsty, without food, and cold and exposure. And if that weren't enough, Paul says, apart from other things, there was a daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all of the churches. So Paul's not saying that you're not going to face opposition. He's not naive. I'm guessing no one can go, I've got a list better than that one. If you do, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. He's not peddling false hope, lies of health, wealth, and happiness. This is not, Paul is like the anti-prosperity gospel preacher. No, he's not saying follow Jesus and you'll never face opposition. That's not what he's saying. Rather, listen to this. What he's saying is that because our salvation is secure, untouchable by the sovereign hand of God, what he's saying is there will never be a serious threat that could stand against the purposes of God in your life. Notice, he's not saying nothing that can stand against your comfort in this life. Nothing against your purposes in your life. No, all of those things are going to face some serious opposition. But what Paul is saying is God's purposes for you. To conform you into the image of God. To make it such that his foreloving of you goes all the way to the glorification of you. Nothing will stand against that. There will never be a serious threat to God accomplishing his purposes for you. We will face adversaries. We will face opposition. And some of them, friends, will be fierce. Some of them will knock you over. You could receive a phone call today that changes everything. But nothing or no one will be a serious threat an opposition to the purposes of God in your life. There will come a day when it seems like death has defeated you and it will seem like death actually had the final word in your life. But Christian, look at me. Death does not get the last word in your life. It doesn't. Death does not speak the better word. God does. There will come a day when you will be resurrected, raised to glorious life. Opposition will never overcome those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is unmistakably, categorically for you. He is for you. God is for you is just really another way to say, like what he said before, that those who love God, all things work together for good. Speaking of this question, John Stott writes this. So he's speaking about how, how Paul's throwing out all these questions. He says, he hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. But, friends, there is no answer. Why? For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called justified and glorified there is nobody 
who has been foreknown, who will not make it to glorification. No one falls to the cracks. Name an opposition that can break God's purposes and determination to love you and keep you to the end. Name one. Name one. Paul's essentially challenging you. Can you name one? Cancer? Disease? Global pandemics? Alzheimer's? Bad grades? Inflation? Financial collapse? Climate change? Trolls on social media? Presidential elections? Losing your job, failure, overbearing bosses, pressures at home, losing loved ones, persecution for believing in God. I mean, I could, we could just keep going. It doesn't matter what we list. I'm not saying I want to experience any of these things, but what Paul is saying is that none of them, not anything or no one, can successfully be against you because God is for you. And therefore, who can be against you? There is nothing in this world that can thwart God's purpose and determination to love you and keep you to the end. So this question is meant to ask us, then what do you fear? What causes your anxiety? Because whatever it is, whatever the answer to that question is, it cannot overcome you. It cannot speak the final word in your life because God is for you. And therefore, no one or nothing can be against you. And that leads Paul to his final question. His final question for us to consider this morning, and it's a question of assurance. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? See, the question in verse 32 actually functions as the proof. If you weren't convinced before that God is for you in verse 31, verse 32 is giving you the proof. How can I know with certainty that God is for me? So he asks another rhetorical question. So if we convert it again from a question to a statement, it goes like this. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Therefore, you can be confident that he will graciously give you all that you need. So let's unpack that together. Let's look at that first phrase. What does it mean when Paul says, he who did not spare his own son? Now that word for sparing is the same word that's used in Genesis 22 when Abraham's faith is put to the test. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that, that word for spare is the same word that we'll find here in Genesis 22. Tomb. We're meant to make that connection. Do you remember that gut-wrenching story? It's a, hard, it, it's a very difficult uh, chapter to read. In fact, if you read it and don't think this is hard and difficult, you're, you're actually not reading it right. It's a gut-wrenching story. After years of waiting for the son of promise, Abraham finally saw his faith made sight when he held Isaac in his arms. And then shockingly, God comes to Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. If you remember the story, without 
any answers to his questions, you know he's asking questions in his mind. He gets no answers. Abraham says, okay. The writer of Hebrews tells us that by faith, Abraham obeyed God. So he took his son, his only son, whom he loved, Isaac, and he went to Mount Moriah, and there he built an altar, and he carefully stacked the wood. And when Isaac said, Father, where is the offering? Abraham said, the Lord will provide. And then when no offering was found, he bound Isaac to the altar. But before the blade had plunged into Isaac's heart or even harmed a hair on his head, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing as you have not, here's our word, withheld. That's the same word, sparing. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That word for withheld in verse 12 is the same word as sparing in verse 32. And it's not a coincidence. Paul is making a verbal connection. God permitted Abraham to spare his son, his only son, the son that he loved. He permitted Abraham to spare him. He permitted Abraham to withhold him from being offered as a sacrifice. And yet, here's Paul's point, for the sake of redemption, God did not give himself that same prerogative. He did not withhold his son, his only son, his son whom he loved. And it becomes even more staggering when we think about the fact that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked to be spared, didn't he? Do you remember the prayer of desperation in Matthew 26, verse 39? And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, here's his request for being spared, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, Jesus asked to be spared the pain of Calvary. Now, because he's the perfect human, he lives in the tension of being able to express his feelings to God and yet submit those feelings to his will. He says, I don't want this, but your will be done. But the very fact that Jesus asked to be spared coupled with the reality that God did not spare his son, his only son, is proof beyond proof that God loves us. Here's why. Calvary, where Jesus died, Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, displays a love for us beyond anything we could have ever imagined or hoped for. Meaning, if you want proof, how do I know Has God given me any signs and evidence of his unmistakable, categorical love for me? The answer is, look to the cross. God loves, God the Father loves us so much that he would willingly suffer the loss of his only son. God the Son loves us so much that he would willingly lay down his life for his friends. John 15, Jesus says that greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he looks him in the face and he tells him, you are my friends. And what happens? A few hours later, he lays down his life. Friends 
Parents will spare children all the time. We'll, we'll come up with some form of consequence or justice and we'll spare them the consequence, the full measure of punishment that is justly due. Parents spare their children all the time. You'll see this in the, in the, in the courtrooms. Judges will spare criminals when they don't pronounce a sentence commiserate with the full weight that the law demands or permits, right? They'll say the, the law allows me to give you 30 years, but let's make it 20. They're, they're sparing them. They're, they're extending mercy. But when it came to saving us from our sin, the Father did not come up short. He did not sweep our sin under the rug or turn a blind eye. He dealt with it the only way possible. He did not withhold. He did not spare. He did not lighten the blow. On the cross at Calvary, the full weight of judgment was executed on God's only begotten son. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced. Speaking of Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement, that's justice, that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Why did it have to happen? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. And verse 10 says, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There's a philosopher, theologian named Nicholas Walterstorff, and he's, he's got a book called Lament for a Son, and he writes about the tragic death of his son in a climbing accident, and he writes this. This is Nicholas, the father who lost his son. He says, if someone asks me, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I say, not immediately, but shortly, I am one who lost a son. That determines my identity. Not all my identity, but much of it. It belongs in my story. What he's saying is when you've lost a child, it becomes a part of your identity. Reflecting on this, Derek Thomas writes, Our Heavenly Father is defined by the fact that he too is one who has lost a son. Handed over to sinners for sinners. When we look at the cross, it seems as though the father loves us more than he loves his son. Now that cannot be, of course, but it looks like that. He loves us that much. No greater evidence of the father's love for us is imaginable or necessary. If you're looking, how can I know that God loves me? Look to the cross. Friends, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Let's look at that second phrase. What does it mean that he gave him up for us all? This word for gave is the Greek word paradidomai, and it comes up often in the Gospels, particularly in the book of Matthew, and it's often translated as delivered. Delivered. You can see kind of the link between giving and delivering. Matthew 20, verse 18, let me give you some examples. See, we are going to Jerusalem, this is Jesus. And he says, the Son of Man will be delivered, same word, to be given over. Delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Matthew 26, verse 15, Judas said, he's speaking to those whom he's going to later be paid for uh, betraying Jesus. He says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Matthew 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Matthew 27, we're just kind of walking through 
the steps towards Jesus' crucifixion, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Because it was his custom to release a prisoner. He says, you want Barabbas? This like known felon and thug? Or Jesus, who's called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Matthew 27, verse 26. Then he released for them, they chose Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. So Jesus says, this is going to happen. Judas pays for it to happen. Then he goes into the hands, he's delivered into the hands of the Jews. Then they deliver him over to the hands of Pilate. And then Pilate delivers him over to death. You see the progression? Peter's first sermon, Acts 22, or Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, here's our word again, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What's, what's my point? Paul is taking this term, paradidomai, to be given over, delivered over, and it's become kind of technical language now. Speaking of Jesus being given over for crucifixion, and he's making the point that it was God who gave Jesus over to be crucified. That's what Paul is saying, that, that God did not withhold, did, did not spare his own son, but gave him up. He, the, the Father delivered Jesus over to be crucified. It was God who delivered Jesus up. Now there's obviously like players and secondary causation happening Right? Speaking of this, Octavius Winslow says, he asked a question, good question. Who delivered up Jesus to die? You might answer Judas. Well, no, it wasn't Judas, not for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Who gave Jesus up to die? The Father. Why did he do it? Out of love. Love for who? You and me. That's why we can sing the great hymn, How Great Thou Art, when I think that God his son not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. It is supposed to be hard for us to consider the reality that God sent Jesus to die for you and me. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he took on our sin, that he bled and died to take away my sin. See, when you combine these two truths, that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up to be crucified in our place for our sins. If God has abundantly proven his generosity and grace to take away my sin and given us the greatest gift, he's saying, doesn't it stand by matter of pure reason then that he will also give us everything else we need? That's Paul's point. It's, it's called an argument from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, if God would go to such lengths to prove his love for you, to display his love for you, to provide for your greatest need, to provide for you in which you can never provide for yourself, then, then wouldn't he also provide what you need to go through the hard realities of everyday life? Since God has given the greatest gift to his son, surely then, Paul's saying, won't he give us everything else we need so that his plan of redemption comes to fruition? If God was willing to give up his son to secure your salvation, do you really think he's going to be stingy when it comes to giving you everything else you need? Now, again, 
This doesn't mean that God is going to give you everything you want. That's prosperity gospel. What it says is he will give you everything you need so that his good purposes for you come to fruition. Paul Tripp says this, if God went to such great lengths as to control the events of the world and to sacrifice his one and only son, would it make any sense at all for him to abandon you between the already of your justification and the not yet of your final glorification? Would it make any sense for him to turn his back on you now? Would it make any sense for him to ignore you in your hour of need? Would you expend a great amount of personal effort and sacrifice to secure something of value and then not work to keep, maintain, and protect it. Friends, God is not stingy when it comes to his grace or his love or his provision. I like how Pastor Ray Ortland says, he, he goes, God is not going to nickel and dime you. How do we know that God is for us? How do we know that God will graciously provide everything we need? He's proven it by not withholding his son, but giving him up for us all. Therefore, Paul says, you can trust him with everything you need. Two points of application as we close. First, don't let circumstances or feelings dictate the reality of God's love. Situations, circumstances, feelings. Here's what I mean. Often when it comes to God's love, we allow our present circumstances to dictate our confidence in God's love. When circumstances are good, our confidence is high. When circumstances are unfavorable, our confidence is low. Or sometimes when, when things aren't going our way, we, we feel like well, maybe, maybe God is mad at me. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he's decided to give up on me. And in those moments, we're allowing our circumstances and our feelings to determine God's love for us. So if I, here's how it goes. We, we assume if I don't feel loved, then it must mean that I'm not loved. I don't feel loved, so therefore I must not be loved. And again, I'm not anti-feelings. I'm not saying, uh, you know, put your feelings away. What I'm saying is your feelings about something do not determine reality. They aren't, they aren't always aligned with truth. I know in the moment we think they are, but they, they aren't often aligned with truth. What this passage is telling us is that our feelings and circumstances are not an accurate barometer of God's love. It'd be like trying to um, use a tire pressure gauge to tell you the temperature outside. They're like both measuring devices, but the tire pressure gauge doesn't do temperature. Right? It's a poor measurement mechanism for what you're trying to do. So what I'm telling you is circumstances and feelings are the wrong measurement tool to know if God loves you. What is the right measurement tool? The cross. That is God's love displayed for you. God is not fickle. Your circumstances do not determine the reality of God's love. And your feelings are not an accurate indication of his love for you. God has gone to great lengths to prove his love for you. And therefore, the cross is his uh, all-time proof to know that God loves you, like Sally Lloyd-Jones says, with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. So when the enemy who likes to whisper 
and accuse and point the finger and tells us things that God doesn't love you, how could he love you? Look to the cross as evidence of God's love for you. When you think, I bet God's given up on me. I give up on me, right? Look to the cross as irrefutable proof of God's love. When you feel alone, when you read your Bible and you pray and you go, this isn't going anywhere. God isn't in this. And you think that God doesn't hear you or care about you anymore. Look to the cross. It is his final word of his love for you. Second point, trust God's provision for everyday life. Trust God's provision for everyday life. Remember, the goal of God's redemption is that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus, meaning that is his biggest hope and and desire for you. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will ensure by his providence and sovereignty that you have everything you need in order for that to happen. So what that means is, as you become transformed in the image of Christ, whatever you need to serve Jesus, you will have it, and you will have it abundantly. Whatever you need to honor Christ, you will have it. Whatever you need to pursue godliness, you will have it. It may not be everything you want or even what you think you need, but it'll be exactly what God has determined to be sufficient and good for you. God withholds nothing, nothing that we need in order to become like Christ and live with him forever. Friends, because God is for us, no one or nothing can be against you. And the cross is your proof. It's all the proof you need. It is irrefutable, irrefutable proof that God's love for you will never wane and it will never diminish. Therefore, you can trust him to give you everything you need. Let's pray.